Please open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to be going through verses 1 through 5. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And as you turn there, I want to tell you an interesting fact. I, I work at one of those jobs where you can't fully say what you do, but you all kind of know what you do anyways. And there's some things I can say and some things I can't say, but this is something I can say that in my job where I work somewhat in the field of immigration, you discover that certain things that you take for granted, you think that everybody does, is not in fact what everybody does. And one of those things is birthdays. We as Americans, as Westerners, all know our birthdays. In fact, you'd probably be pretty upset if you found out that your spouse didn't know your birthday or mom forgot your birthday, right? You expect birthday cards and people to let you know and your siblings, even they are supposedly supposed to know your birthday. And sometimes you expect your friends to know your birthday. Birthdays are a big thing around here. In fact, when I was in middle school and elementary school and high school, there was always that kid on his birthday that walked around with balloons and a little birthday hat. That was never me. But birthdays are a big thing. Sometimes, some of you might see that at work, even to this day. Birthday, you get a little balloon in and everybody wants to celebrate birthdays. Well, it turns out that that is a Western idea, that not everybody really cares about birthdays. In fact, did you know that there are many people in the East, for example, that don't even know their birthday? Not just mama forgot, not just daddy forgot, but they don't know their birthday at all. How do I know this? Well, what happens when somebody doesn't know their birthday, applies for a visa, and tries to come over here? We got to know some of that information, right? We need to know their first name, their last name, and their date of birth. But they don't know their date of birth. They kind of understand they were born somewhere around there, right? But they don't know exact date of birth. So you know most common birthday for immigrants who don't know their birthday? January 1st. We don't know it, so just put January 1st, right? And if you see that, you're a good chance that that person actually doesn't know, in fact, their birthday. But even though they don't know their birthday, they still understand basically how old somebody is. And how do they know? Well, one, they can look at you, right? That they can see, if you have gray hair, you're probably not 14. If you have a beard, you're probably over 20, right? There are certain ways that they can kind of figure these things out. And it's also based on experience. If you've gone through certain life experiences, you're probably at a certain age. For example, say you only knew one fact about a person, namely that they were a grandparent, how old do you think they would be? Well, it depends on various things in the culture, but they're probably not 20. You can probably figure that out. And if somebody says, my great-great-grandma is still alive, likewise, they're probably not 60. You see that? It's based on various experiences. Well, as a Christian, we too will go through various experiences because we too have a spiritual birthday. How many of you know your spiritual birthday? Maybe you're like the East and don't know your spiritual birthday, but kind of understand that you were born somewhere around that time, right? Well, just as we physically age, we spiritually age, and that's based on our spiritual birthday. You've been one year in the Lord. We expect different things from you than if you've been 25 years in the Lord. That's self-explanatory. But for some of you, it's more difficult because you were saved sometime in childhood, or you're debating, was it really at 5, or 15, or 25, or 35 after the divorce, Right? It gets a little confusing for some of you. So one way, just like people in the East, that you can kind of figure out how old you are spiritually is based on your experiences. And as you plug in to the body of Christ, 
you will go through various experiences. Let me mention some of those experiences. You'll see single people get married. Hallelujah. And you'll see married people get divorced. Not so good. You'll see babies born. Hallelujah. And unfortunately, you'll see babies die. Right? You'll see the whole spectrum of life all across the reality. One thing you'll also see is one of the greatest things you could ever see. It's a baptism. You'll see someone testify that they have been born again and symbolize that in the water of the baptism. If you don't get excited about baptism, something's wrong with you. Baptisms are exciting, especially real baptisms when we immerse them. Amen, Baptists? It's awesome. But the op- what is the opposite of baptism? We have life, death, marriage, divorce. What's the opposite of baptism? Anybody know? Apostasy, excommunication. And as you are growing in the Lord, and as you spending time in the church, you will see all of this. And if you haven't seen this, just hang on. You will. Because this is the fact of reality of life. But now that we're on that terrible subject of apostasy, let me ask you this for you who've been around the block a few times. Why do people apostatize? Or what is the commonality about people who apostatize? They apostatize for all different various reasons, but as you think through that, is there any commonality? Is there any common sin? Is there any common trait? And I think there is. In fact, I've seen many apostasies, and I've noticed that many apostasies have one particular sin, one particular sin that they all seem to have in common. Maybe not all of them, but most of them. And I think it's a sin that you won't guess, and we'll talk about that, and we'll look at that. But it's one of those, Jerry Bridges has a book called Respectable Sins, It's one of those respectable sins. It's one of those sins if somebody says, you don't immediately call the pastor, call the elders, and get ready for church discipline. In fact, it might be a sin in this room. In fact, I doubt it is not a sin that's not in this room. So we'll talk about that. Let's keep, go back to our text in Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews 3, 1 through 5. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus who was faithful to him, who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all of his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all of his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast, the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So look back to verse one. Notice that our passage begins with a therefore. And when we look at therefores, we should say, what is being therefore? If you read back into chapter two, the connection is not immediately obvious. And so I was tempted to just ignore it. But I kept hearing that point I just made before that you should always figure out what the therefore is there for. And so I look more closely into it. And it seems that the therefore is connecting back to chapter 2 about Christ's sanctifying work. Again, look at verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren. If you go back to chapter 2 and verse 11, it says, For he, that's Christ, both is him who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified are all of one. You can't really see it in the English, but the word for holy and sanctified are connected in the Greek. It's kind of like holify. Right? That's what sanctify is, is to holify someone. So Christ, the sanctifier, 
has sanctified us, and so we get to be sanctified people, namely holy one. This is also why we call people saints. We're not Catholics. Catholics only say special people are saints. The Bible says you are all saints if you trust in Jesus. So I think the idea here is this holy brethren is connecting back to this idea of the sanctifying work of Jesus. It allows us not to just be brothers, right? Brethren, family members. I come from a culture we call everybody brothers, but that's not what's going on here. This is not just a colloquial way of speaking. It's not just comrade, homie, friend, person, neighbor. No, we're actually brothers. That means a familial idea that we are families, that we have that connection. We're not just family, though. We're a holy family. We're a set-apart family. We're a sanctified family to God. We are, in the words of Hebrews 3.1, we are holy brethren. We're not just brothers, though. We're not just holy brothers, but we're holy brothers with a holy destiny. And that holy destiny is described back in chapter 2, verse 10. Look to chapter 2, verse 10. It says that Christ is bringing many sons to glory. That same idea is here when it says, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. Now, that, that phrase, heavenly calling, is a little bit confusing. If you just read it, what does that mean? Holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling. What exactly does that mean? And when you have a question, you should pray about it. And then you should meditate on it. And then you should probably check out some commentators. And if you go to the commentators, this is what you just discover. You discover that this is interpreted in two different ways. The first is it's describing people who have received a calling from heaven. And that calling from heaven is a circumlocution, which is just a different way of saying that this is the art of trying not to say God. But basically, that heavenly call is the call that comes from heaven, which comes from God. So it would be holy brethren called by God from heaven. You are all receiving the divine and holy call. And if you go through the Bible, that's certainly a biblical idea. But there's another possibility, and I actually favor this concept, which is holy brethren who are appointed or called to an appointment in heaven. The NLT puts it this way. Therefore, holy brothers who are partners with those called to heaven. So the debate is whether it's called from heaven, namely called by God, or called to heaven. That is where your heavenly destination is. I take the latter, but I won't fight with you if you take the former. This idea that we have a heavenly call to heaven, a call up there, is explicitly biblical. We see this in Philippians 3.14. There it says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is the upward call? You know, I always get confused between Star Wars and Star Trek, so I'm not sure which one it is. But there's this phrase that I like, and I don't actually know the show at all, but I like the show, Beam Me Up Scotty. Star, Star Trek, some of you fans, thank you. Well, we have a Beam Me Up Scotty moment coming individually, when the angels come and gather us, when we die, we go to be in Abraham's bosom with Christ, and collectively when Christ returns and the rapture occurs and the great trumpet is blown and we are raptured up with Christ. That upward call in Christ Jesus, where you called up, this is where the word rapture, you're snatched up and you go to be with God. And I think that's what is going on here, that we are called to consider, he reminds us here in verse 1, that we are partakers of a heavenly calling. He wants you to think about the reality that you have a heavenly inheritance, that you will become a son of glory. Now, it's, it's really 
amazing when you think about that. When you think about the fact that you have a heavenly inheritance that one day Christ is going to call you up into heaven. And what that means is this. That means that right now while you're here on the earth, you are as close to hell as you ever get. Do you realize that? This is as bad as it gets. The pain, the suffering, the misery, the death, the disappointment. This is as bad as it gets. It only goes up from here. And that's really, really good news, right? Because some of you are suffering. Some of you are depressed. Some of you are sad. Some of you are frustrated. I'll tell you a frustration that I currently have. So recently, I got a nice house. At least I think it's nice. And it has a little bit of property, a little homestead going to be there. And so as I, there's a rap song that says, more money, more problems. Well, more property, more problems. So now I have a property, and I'm thinking, well, I can't just let the weeds take it over, so I have to mow it, right? It's not a big problem, but I'm thinking, well, if I have a little homestead, I got to get some vegetables, and I don't know about you, but I don't just like vegetables. I like meat. Anybody like meat? I like meat a lot. Turns out, though, to get meat, you have to get animals, right? That's not surprising, but turns out something even worse, though. The animals just don't shoot out meat, <laughs> like vegetables. You have to do something to the animals to get the meat out. It's terrible. I'm not looking forward to that experience. I love the meat, but I really don't like the death. I don't really like the slaughter. Why do we have to do that? Why do I have to kill an animal to get my steaks? What's going on here? Well, it's because we're in a fallen world, and there's misery, and there's death, and there's pain, and even good things often have that unfortunate reality that you have to go through, right? We're as close to hell as we'll possibly ever be as Christians. And that is good news. We'll have steak without killing. At least I think so. It'll be a good day. Here's the bad news, though. Good news for you believers, bad news for you unbelievers. The opposite is also true. If you're an unbeliever, if you're someone who has not got right with the Lord, do you realize that you're as close to heaven as you'll ever get? It only goes down from here. Your worst nightmare pales in comparison to the fate that you will be awaiting. Have you ever noticed that all scary movies are all dark concepts? There's always some kind of dark and gloomy dungeon-like reality where there's fire in the background. That's like the stuff horror movies are made of. Well, it turns out it's not just the stuff horror movies are made of. It's the stuff that hell is made of. Hell is described as a place where the fire burns hot and the worm shall never die and the dungeon shall never unleash its victims. If you think that I'm exaggerating, consider the words of Revelation 4.10. The wicked shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Let me stop there. I just want to say this. Do you realize that God created pleasure? He created pleasure. Every time you eat that strawberry, you should be thanking God. Because that strawberry tastes so delicious because God made the strawberry delicious. Right? Back to steaks. Thank God. He made those steaks. And he gave you salt. And some of you barbecue sauce. It's great. God created pleasure, and he knows how to please us. There's some very intense, pleasurable experiences that are totally non-sinful here on the earth. But there's a, there's a flip side of that. If God created pleasure, who created pain? Not the devil. The devil can't create anything. God created pain. And so if the God who created pleasure who says there's pleasures and riches at my right hand and I'm going to shower them upon you, decides to shower upon you his pleasures, that's really, really good news for you. That's why I say there's stakes in heaven. But the flip side is this. 
That same God who created pain, if he decides that he's going to, in the words of Revelation 14, 10, he is going to pull out full strength, his anger upon you, what kind of pain do you think he can inflict you? In the words of Hebrews a little bit later, it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Don't mess with this being. Don't mess with this God. This is what it looks like. You shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. You know, there used to be a store called TGI Friday. Now that I think they, we live in such a secular society, it's just called Fridays. But it used to be called TGI Friday, which standing for thank God it is Friday. Why do we say that? Thank God it's Friday. Why? Because we like the weekend. Why do you like the weekend? To work? I don't like the weekend to work. I like the weekend to rest. On a side note, the Sabbath is a blessing. A day where God tells you you can rest? Amen, I'll take that day. I like that day. He even gives us sometimes in the Old Testament sabbaticals. You know what we call that today? Vacations. Who's disappointed about their vacation? Oh, no, I have a vacation. It's going to be terrible. I'm going to be hanging out on the beach. No, vacations are nice because... They're restful. That's the point. Well, God says here that the wicked in hell have no rest day or night. They don't even get the nightly rest. That nightly rest is nice, right? Everybody likes put their head on the pillow, sleep, wake up, feel refreshed. They don't get that. They don't even get a nightly rest, let alone a weekly rest, let alone a vacation. They get nothing. Rather, what they get is being tormented with fire and brimstone day and night, forever and ever. I like to tell people this. I'm not exactly sure what corresponds to being tormented day and night, forever and ever, but I sure don't want to find out. I sure don't want to say, this is what it feels like to be tormented in fire and brimstone. Hmm. Sounds pretty horrible to me. Revelation 20.10. The devil who had deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Look, there's two destinies. Two destinies. You can inherit with Christ. You can receive what he receives. You can be transformed to be like him. You can be reigning in his kingdom with his glory in his paradise in his peace. Or you can be reigning, I shouldn't say reigning, you can be suffering with the devil because the devil's not reigning in hell. And you can receive his destiny, which is to be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is the reality. So what should you do in light of those truths, especially for you who are unbelievers? The first thing you should do is howl and moan. You should complain and think, Woe is me, for such a horrible fate is coming upon me. And it should cause you quite a lot of distress. Just think about that. Just think about if you really believe that, that this was going to happen to you. It would sap the joy out of your life immediately, right? This is what happens when people have money. People have money, they get more money, more problems. They start looking at their S&P 500 and start thinking, hmm, what all could go wrong? And they look at history, and it saps the joy out of their present experience. Well, this should be us, if we're unbelievers, realizing no matter what you have, no matter what bright idea you think is going to come your way, whatever fortunes you think are going to happen to you, it's not. In the end of that, there is no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, but nothing but hell for you. So you should weep and mourn. But when you stop weeping and mourning, what you should do even more importantly is repent of your sins and say, this doesn't have to be me. I don't have to fall into this destiny, but rather I can become saved. I can be redeemed. I can be forgiven. How do we do that? All we got to do is call upon the name of the Lord. Lord, I don't want to be with the devil. The devil never did me any good. I don't want to spend eternity with him. Cry out to the Lord. Say, Lord, forgive me. 
I know what I deserve, but save me. And he shall. That's all you got to do. I'm not telling you to climb a mountain. I'm not telling you to fast 40 days. I'm not telling you to give all that you have. No, all I'm telling you to do is what the Bible tells you to do, which is in the words of Romans 10, 13, call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. It's that easy. Call upon his name. That's all you got to do. How easy would it be right now to pick up your phone and call your mom, call your brother, call your boss? It'd be pretty easy. It's even easier to call upon the name of the Lord. Did you know that? Because what, calling your boss, you got to hope your battery's charged. You got to pull out your phone. You got to click a few numbers or at least scroll over to your contacts and find them. With God, you can always talk to him. Just pray. Call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's all you got to do. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and you'll instantly be saved. And I can testify that happened to me. It's exactly what I did. I got on my knees. I called upon the name of the Lord. I asked him to save me and I was changed forever. Had a one-way ticket to hell, changed a one-way ticket to heaven. And you know, when I listen to people's testimony, it is amazing, especially for you who were saved past the age of 14, who remember it. It's amazing how many of you did exactly what I did. Nobody told you. You heard the gospel in your own little private place. You called upon the name of the Lord, and you were born again. You were saved, you were changed, and you walked out of that room knowing that your destiny was forever changed. It's amazing. I love to hear it. I hear it all the time. It's like we're all running from the same playbook because it's true. One more verse, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. That word, whoever, is a beautiful word. It means you. Just like whoever sins shall die, whoever believes shall have eternal life. That can be you if you will simply believe. Now, back to you Christians. Hopefully most of you are Christians. So what should you do if you're already saved, if you already have that one-way ticket to heaven? Well, the first thing you should do is consider your heavenly home. The second thing, keep doing the first thing. Keep considering your heavenly home. Consider the words of Colossians chapter 3. If then you were raised with Christ, born again, changed, redeemed, saved, forgiven, seek then those things which are above, where Christ is, seating at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Let me tell you something strange. As you prosper, as you get rich, as your dreams come true on this earth, you think it's a blessing, and it is kind of a blessing, but there's a curse to that too. You know what it is? The more stuff you have on earth, the more you're tempted to think about it. The more you think to focus in on it the more you're tempted to think, this is heaven right now. Why do I need heaven? I got this. But it's interesting. As God takes that stuff away and you think it's all bad, it becomes a whole lot easier to look up. You can learn the easy way or the hard way. You can make God take your stuff and he might take your stuff anyways. Or you can say, you know what, God, I'm not gonna look at this stuff. I'm gonna look at you. I'm gonna obey this passage. Whether I'm blessed or whether or not, it's all been taken away. Here's another passage, Romans chapter two, verse six. God will render to each one of you according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance seek good, excuse me, in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Did you, did you catch that? God is going to render according to each one, according to his deeds. And this is the description of the believer. We are going to receive eternal life by patient continuation in doing good and those who seek 
for glory, honor, and immortality. We are to seek for those things. We are to want glory, honor, and immortality. I re- this is one of my favorite verses. Recently, I was listening to a sermon by Paul Washer. He said, this verse, if, he didn't, if you didn't know this was in the Bible, you might think this was from some kind of Spartan literature, seeking for glory, honor, and immortality. It's not Spartan literature. It's the Bible. You should be seeking after those things. You can't seek what you don't think about. Have any of you ever lost some keys? I know I do. I think I put it in the right place. I'm ready to go. I go to that right place and the keys are missing. And then I scramble around and I go seeking the keys. But I don't go seeking the keys when I think they're in the right place. I only go seeking the keys when I realize that they're lost. And so too for us. You're not going to be seeking God. You're not going to be seeking after glory, honor, and immortality. You're not going to be considering Christ unless you realize that you should be doing that in the first place. This isn't something that just comes automatically. You have to be reminded of these things. You need to be encouraged. You need to be taking inventory of yourself and asking yourself, am I seeking Christ? Am I seeking for glory, honor, and immortality? Many of us think that we shouldn't be seeking for those things, but the Bible tells us otherwise. Many of us don't think we should be seeking for health, power, prosperity, and wealth. That's all carnal stuff, right? No. In fact, the truth is you are seeking for health, wealth, prosperity, and all these things. Every time you think about the new diet you're going to go on, you're thinking about health. Every time you make investment decisions, you're thinking about wealth. Every time you're trying to grow, go up on the ladder at your job, you're thinking about power. None of those things are bad in and of themselves. The problem is when you try to get all that here and now instead of storing up treasures in heaven. Jesus told us, do not store up your treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Notice he doesn't say, don't worry about treasure. Don't worry about any of those things. He doesn't say that. He says, I know you care about treasure. You were made to care about treasure. God created us to be productive human beings. The very first command God gave us was to be fruitful and to fill the earth. We are kingdom builders. The only question is, what kingdom are we going to build? Are we going to build our own kingdom? Are we going to bring our our own wealth, our own prosperity? Are we going to rather build the kingdom of Christ who promised us to reward us tenfold, a hundredfold, a thousandfold? So the first thing we should do as believers is consider our heavenly home. Second thing is likewise, consider your heavenly home. How much have you been considering it lately? Consider your heavenly home. All right, what's the second thing? The second thing is to consider Christ himself. Not just our heavenly home, but Christ. Look at our passage again. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all of his house. So we should consider Christ, who is our apostle and our high priest, setting our minds on Christ, remembering what he went through to redeem us, remembering how he conquered the world, the flesh, and the devil. We should look to Christ and ask ourselves, he was faithful, should I be faithful? He resisted, should I resist? But some of you might be thinking, well, that's Christ. Of course he did it because he's God. Well, our passage doesn't just say Christ was faithful, does it? Look again. That we should consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful. Christ was faithful, right? But it also says, as Moses also was faithful. Did you see that? 
Christ was faithful, but also so was Moses. And by extension, so is other believers. It's not just Christ. And so this should tell us that faithfulness is not perfection. Because Christ was perfect. He was the lamb slain, unblemished. He's the one who could say, which one of you can accuse me of sin? But Moses, come on, can we accuse Moses of sin? Well, he certainly was kicked out of the promised land for some sin. He murdered, I mean, we can, we can get some sins on Moses, right? And yet look what your text says. It says that Moses was faithful. So if Moses is faithful and he's a human being, what does that mean for you? That means you too can be faithful. Faithful is not sinless perfection. Faithful means this, that the general tenor of your life is one of obedience. That when someone looks at your life, they see that there's an altar there, and on that altar, it says God. It doesn't say you. It doesn't say money. It doesn't say sex. It doesn't say any of that. It says God. That is the marching orders of your life, that you are, by and large, a faithful person. This is obtainable. This is not some pie in the sky that you can't obtain to. God has given you the Holy Spirit. The Bible says he redeems you so that you could be zealous. Anybody know the rest of that verse? Zealous for what? Good works. That's not a pie in the sky. He wants you to be zealous for good works, and that's why he redeemed you. And guess what? If you are zealous for good works, you will be a faithful person. But if you are slothful toward good works, and you think life's all about you and your pleasure and your dreams and your goals, you will be an unfaithful person. The Bible says that Jesus was the light of the world. And then he says this, I say now, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but under a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and may glorify God. God made you a light of the world so that people may see your good works and that may glorify God. Christian, are you a light of the world? Is anybody seeing your good works? Is anybody glorifying God based on you? Jesus was faithful. Moses was faithful. Hopefully, you can think of a handful of Christians in your life that you can say, that brother right there, that sister is faithful. They follow the Lord. Not perfect, but they're faithful. Hopefully, we all know somebody like that, right? Here's the question, though. You have to ask yourself, do people know us? Sure, they know us, right? Are we on anybody's list? If I asked all the Christians I know, and they said, I asked them, do you know any faithful Christians? They say, sure. I say, what are they? Who are they? What are their names? What are their numbers? How do I find them? Anybody knowing you, would you be on their list? If not, there's something wrong, right? If not, perhaps we are unfaithful, and we need to be faithful, We need to consider Christ once again, and we need to consider Jesus once more. Here's the truth. The Bible says, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened to you. You know what this means? If you ask God, God, make me faithful. God, help me stop breaking the first commandment, have no other gods before me, and not break the second commandment. Do not worship idols. Help me erect you as the center of my life, that yes, I don't perfectly follow it, but I want to be marching to your drum. You know, if you ask for God to do that to you, he'll do it. Somebody once said, you're as holy as you ask to be. Put it differently, you're as holy as you want to be. Because all you got to do is ask. God is never going to say, nope, 
Don't want you to be holy. Don't want you to be faithful. I want you to live in your sin. You think God's going to say that to you? No, he won't. He will answer our prayers. All right, let's move on to something else. So notice that Jesus has two titles here. He's called an apostle, and he's called a high priest. Let's take one at a time. So he's an apostle. What does that mean? I mean, excuse me, he's a high priest. What does that mean? He's our mediator. He's our intercessor. He's the one who offered himself up to redeem us. We should be very familiar with that title, high priest. He's the great Melchizedek who restores us to God. But this title, he's the apostle, is strange to us. One of the reasons it's strange is it only shows up here. When we think of the word apostle, we think of the 12 apostles. But Jesus is obviously not one of the 12 apostles. He's the one who sent out the 12 apostles. But the idea here is just describing Jesus as a sent out one. And of course, he was sent by the Father. He was sent to redeem us. Jesus said in John six thirty eight, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he was one who was sent, therefore he is an apostle. Now this is a good reminder for us that just because you hear a title, apostle, messenger, angel, doesn't mean it's always exactly what you think it is. That Christ is, in this sense, the great apostle. But in a lesser sense, if you think about it, you too are an apostle. Because if apostle just means sent out one, you too have been sent out. He chose you out of the world, and then he sent you back into the world. You know, the very first question, or one of the very first questions I had when I first got saved is, what next? Why am I still here? I want to go home. I don't want to be here anymore. Well, why are we here? Matthew twenty-eight nineteen through 20 is a good starting place. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. For lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Amen. You're here because he sent you out. He sent you out to go into the highways and the byways and to invite lost men and to encourage them to meet their Savior and also to find saved men and to teach them all that he has commanded you. If you're still here, you still have a mission. You're still his apostle. I know you want to go home, but Christ wants you here. And so while you are here, don't be disobedient. Go ahead and follow him because it'll be better for you when you see him. He'll be a lot happier with you. Well done, good and faithful servant, but you have obeyed his will. All right, another thing that we see in our passage is we see a contrast between Jesus and Moses. Hopefully everybody sees that in Hebrews chapter 3. There's this contrast between Jesus and Moses, and we're given two pictures. The first is a contrast between a builder of a house and the building itself, and the second is a contrast between a servant and a son. And both of those pictures are saying the same thing, that Christ is infinitely greater of worth than Moses. And that's really a theme throughout the book of Hebrews, is to describe and contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so what probably is going on here is you have the mediator of the Old Covenant, Moses, compared to the mediator of the New Covenant, Jesus. And he's trying to say, as much glory as you gave to Moses, it pales in comparison to the glory that Jesus received. But I think possibly there's another idea here. I think if you were to ask a Jew, who is the most important person in the Old Testament? I think there would be three names that would come up. What do you think those names would be? You ask a Jew, what are the three most important 
humans, persons, in the Old Testament, I think they would say Moses, Abraham, and David. I think, I think that's fair to say. And of those three, I thought long-hearted about this. Who would be the most important? It's kind of a toss-up for me. It's really difficult. Abraham's the father of the Jews, but Moses is the mediator of the Jews, and of course David is the great king. But I think of those two, it'd be a toss-up between Abraham and Moses. So I've had to figure out, how can I try to get some statistical basis to justify Moses is the most important person so I could use this in my sermon? How could I do it? So I typed into some Google program and asked, how many times is Moses in the Old Testament mentioned versus Abraham? Now, what do you think? Which one? Is it Abraham is mentioned more often or Moses? If some of you are analysts and say, if I'm bringing this up, it must be Moses. If you say that, you're right. In fact, Moses is mentioned three times more often than Abraham. For you math people, it's actually 3.19. So I'm going to say, for this very shaky mathematical statistical equation, that Moses is the most person, most important person in the Old Testament. So you have the most important person in the Old Testament compared to, well, let's ask that question. Who is the most important person in the New Testament? And I started thinking, well, of course, the Sunday school answer is Jesus, which you'd be right. But, you know, I got a top three from the Old Testament, so let me get a top three from the New Testament. So who's in that top three? Dream team. Who is it? Obviously, Jesus, he's number one, right? We already put him in there. Who else? Oh, yeah, I put Paul in there too. And, oh, John, stop. No, don't say John. Peter. I like John. I love John. I put Peter there. Okay, got to get some controversy there. So of those two, obviously, Jesus is number one, and then Peter and Paul. And which one of those two? I thought, well, I'm a Gentile, so of course it's Paul. So Paul is going to be number one. And, of course, I did my statistical analysis and found out, sure enough, Paul is mentioned more times than Peter. So, based on all this very shaky stuff, I'm going to say we have the most important person in the Old Testament, Moses, compared to the most important person in the New Testament, Jesus. And how do they compare? Well, there's an astounding winner. Jesus is the most important person in the entire Bible, right? He's the center of the universe. He's the greatest. In the words of Hebrews 3.3, he is counted of more glory than Moses, much more glory. He is the one that we should listen to. He is the one. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration? You had another dream team. You had another three individuals up there. You had Jesus. Some of you Bible people know this. You have Moses. And you had Elijah. And you remember Peter was all messed up. He even says in the Bible, he did not know what he was talking about. And he said, let's bring a tabernacle. Let's build a tabernacle for all three of you. And God said, that is my son. Listen to him. We listen to him. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is glorious. And we should follow him. Because he, unlike Moses, is not a mere man. He is, in fact, the God-man. And so even though our analogy in the passage says that he is as much greater than Moses as a, uh, as a human being is compared to a building or as a son is compared to a servant, really, even that is not truly accurate that we have the infinite God in comparison to finite men. A man, Moses. As great as a man he was, he was a faithful man, we saw that. He was the most meek man in the Bible. You see that mentioned in the Old Testament. But he is still a man. 
And this is a great reminder to us. The best of men are still mere men. And again, we see that with Moses, a faithful man, yet a sinful man, because the best of men are still mere men. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is Psalm 103. It says this, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are but dust. So how could God call Moses a faithful man? Because he remembered his frame, and that he was but dust. This is how a holy God who's forgiven us of our sins can still call us faithful, even when we are often unfaithful. Here's a question for you. If God remembers our frame and remembers that we are but dust, do you always remember for your holy brethren that they too are but dust? You you get the concept. God looks at you and says, I know you're but dust, so I'm going to cut you some slack. I'm going to overlook some things. I'm going to continue to work with you and be patient with you because you're a human being with a fallen nature that often sends. That's how God treats us. But how do we often treat our brothers and sisters who sin against us with outrage, with fury, with shock and all? I can't believe you would treat me this way. And we, we grow angry. And anger turns into resentment and resentment turns into bitterness. Let's go back to the beginning of the sermon as we wrap it up. Remember I said there was one common sin that apostates almost all have? You know what that sin is? Bitterness. Unforgiveness. I've seen it time and time again. They looked okay. They looked righteous. They looked godly. They taught Sunday school. They showed up to church. They were a deacon. Blah, blah, blah. Right? But you often find that the one sin that they utterly refused to repent of was unforgiveness. Even though the Bible was 100% clear that if you do not forgive, your heavenly father will not forgive you, they thought that passage didn't apply to them. They hated their dad no matter what. They hated that pastor no matter what because you don't understand what they did to me. You don't understand what I've gone through. Blah, blah, blah. And they refused to repent. And you know what I I saw? God's word was true. If you refuse to forgive, your heavenly father will refuse to forgive you and that will become manifested by your future apostasy. Hope everybody's hearing this. Do not reject God's word. Obey it. Every day we should be praying the Lord's prayer, which tells us this. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do you know that Jesus only commented on one piece of his Lord's prayer? Does anybody know what it is? He only gave one commentary. He only gave one explanation. He only said, you know what? This is a very important point. I don't want you to miss this. After he gave the Lord's Prayer, you know what it was? It was the necessity of forgiveness because we have to forgive. And then he gave a whole parable about a guy who, was, who owed, in today's equivalent, about 2 to $3 billion of debt, the thousand talents. Remember this? And he begged out for forgiveness and God gave him forgiveness. And then he went out to his neighbor who owed him some money, and he owed him a small amount. And people get this wrong. People say, oh, it was tiny. It was pennies. It was 100 denarii. Does anybody know how much a denarii is? It's one day's salary. So all you got to do is figure out, well, what's your salary? And divide that by 
three and figure out how much it is. So let's just assume that some of you make $100,000 in here. I'm just going to assume that. Some of you probably make more than that, but I'm just going to assume, for the sake of argument, you make $100,000. How much is that? That's $33,000. What if somebody owed you $33,000 and they refused to give it to you? You think you might be a little bit upset? Here's, here's the point of that. This person didn't just slightly violate them. They didn't just owe them 50 bucks. This person greatly violated them. $30,000, he said, I'm not paying you back. Actually, they said, I will pay you back, but they didn't pay him back, is the point. And he got very upset. And that's the point. People have sinned against you, and they sinned against you quite a lot. Doesn't matter. You still need to forgive, because your $30,000 debt that somebody owes you is nothing compared to the $3 billion plus that you owe God. You must absolutely forgive. There is no exception clause. If you refuse to forgive, he will refuse to forgive you. All right, we're completely out of time. So let me get to this last point so we don't have to come back here. The last thing we see in Hebrews chapter 3 in our passage is that statement right there in the end where it says, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing, excuse me, it says, we are his house if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. There's a promise here and a warning. Let me give you the good news first. Here's the promise. We are his house if we hold fast. So if we hold fast, if we truly are his house, then we shall hold fast. Hopefully you see that. If we truly are his house now, we will manifest that truth by holding fast. And that's a great promise. It's called eternal security. And we can rest in that. But there's also a great warning here. And it's this. If we refuse to hold fast to the end and we apostatize, then we are currently not his house. The Bible is so clear about this. Don't let anybody ever deceive you. Whoever endures to the end shall be saved. You've got to keep running. You've got to keep chasing after him. Perseverance of the saints says that all true believers will endure to the end. Perseverance of the saints doesn't say you can do whatever you want. You can become an atheist. It doesn't matter. You'll still be saved. That's a completely false doctrine, and it will send you straight to hell. You can be sure of one thing. If you deny Christ, he will deny you. It couldn't be more simple. Back to John 3, 16, and we'll end it. For whosoever believes, if you stop believing, that passage doesn't apply to you. Trust in him. The confidence we have, though, is if you do believe, you will have eternal life. Eternal life can't be lost because you will continue to trust in him to the end. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your warnings. Lord, I pray that we would not be satisfied with unfaithfulness, that we would not believe that unfaithfulness is impossible to obtain to that we would know that this is what you called us to, Lord, and that we would be faithful, that people could say we are faithful Christians, not perfect Christians, but we are faithful Christians. And we ask you, Lord, to help us to want that, to ask for that, and to, and to be that. Lord, we, we ask that we would not be people who think that forgiveness is some kind of optional virtue. We can if we want, but if our circumstances are too harsh that we somehow don't have to forgive, Lord, I don't want to see anybody apostatize. I don't want to apostatize myself. Help us to be forgiving people in Jesus' name. Amen.